Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first surah um, of 2022. I'm so excited to be here. Um, first, I, I want to just ask everyone to say a prayer for everyone out there who is sick, because there are a lot of people who are struggling with illness and COVID and Omicron, and it's a difficult time um, for everyone and their families. And so I hope everyone is um, doing their best to stay, stay safe and healthy. And inshallah, if, if you are ill, to um, inshallah, um, you know, you'll be on the mend soon. Hopefully things will not be too difficult or too, too serious. Um, and hopefully you're, you're watching, taking the opportunity to watch a lot of shows um, and Netflix and things like that. Um, I, I know that um, I thought I would just like share some silly comments and thoughts, but I love um, watching um, shows that remind me of what we're learning here at Project Illumin because ultimately, you know, the Quran is telling us stories about human, the human condition and what happens to people and the choices that they make. And certainly I think I've said before here that, um, you know, we watch a lot of crime shows here and um, they're very, very fascinating studies of um, you know human beings and what happens to them, the choices they make, um, and sometimes people are hurt or killed um, for no fault of their own. Um, but they're such an important reminder of the world that we live in, and especially in, in light of a pandemic. You know, we have to be as we're starting a new year and thinking about the future and what this next year holds for us. I mean, inshallah, it'll be a better year than next year. Um, but you know these difficult times are such an important reminder that life is short and that they um, you know the the decisions that we make are consequential and that you know we should be grateful for every moment and choose wisely in everything that we do the thing that I thought I would share about crime shows if you um, you know one of our favorite channels is investigation um, discovery or it's part of the discovery channel so it's channel ID and there are an amazing array of different kinds of shows um, that you know show people in different situations, people who have suffered traumatic um, situations and recover. So you see incredible stories of strength, um, and you know some like one of my favorites is um, Vanity Fair Confidential, which talks about people who live you know the high life. They're rich. They're in Hollywood and whatever, and the choices they make and the zukruf, you know, the glitter and all of the different things that can happen. Um, but what is really striking to me um, is a lot of these cases, you know, they, they don't often get solved for 20, 25 years after the fact. And when you're watching these crime shows, they actually take you back, you know, to the beginning and you see the crime and you see all the things that happen over the course of, you know, sometimes decades before they figure out. And the thing that's always really striking to me is you get a sense of what a person's life was about. So if you re are watching the story of a serial killer or you're watching the story of um, someone who, you know, only married for money and killed their, their spouses and, you know, whatever, um, or even someone who was, you know, kidnapped or abducted and lost their life very early, you get the sense that each life is so valuable and each life can almost be summed up in a story. And it starts making you think, like especially when you see these lives that are wasted because they made bad decisions or they decided that they you know, wanted money or they cared more about their own situation than they did about the, their victims. It's a powerful cautionary tale and a very um, interesting story because you're looking at the you know, a person's life um, from in its entirety in the, in a, in the you know, context of a 60-minute show. 
And it makes you wonder what then would my life be about if someone were to sum up like the, the sum total of all the things that I did. What would my one life have represented? Because it's easy to look at these shows and say, okay, this person, that person's life was about a murder. That person's life was about abusing their spouse. And, you know, and recognizing that every life comes to an end and that the truth always emerges. Um, and, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating um, reflective experience, especially when we are learning about you know, what the Quran is telling us about how we choose to live our lives and the choices we make and how we treat other people and how, you know, we, we operate and ultimately what, you know, what we have to look forward to based on the decisions that we live in, you know, here or the choices that we make here. And, um, and if you didn't, if you um, didn't read my, my weekly email this, this week, I highlighted a, a movie that we watched together on uh, Netflix here called Don't Look Up, which I would highly recommend. Um, it's a satirical um, movie about climate change. Um, it's two people who discover a comet is headed straight for Earth. Um, it's going to destroy the planet and people have about six months to live. And so they decide that they need to take it upon themselves to let everyone know. And um, people don't, you know, you see what people's reactions are. They don't believe them. They call them crazy. They think that, um, you know, it's, it's not true. Um, very similar to what we do here at Project Illumin, right? So we're telling people about, you know, the Quranic message and how, you know, what's going, what's coming. The final day will come, the choices that you make, you know, whether, you, you know, it, it's probably much of what the prophet went through trying to warn people um, and being called crazy or being um, mistreated and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, in our time, it's a very important and powerful um, movie and message for what's happening, for example, with climate change. And we know that there is um, disaster headed our way. And unless we avert um, our, our direction and, and change our course, um, this is coming. Um, and so it's a really um, powerful movie, um, especially the ending. I won't give the ending away. But it really hammers home, again, being reflective, thinking about you know, the, the very quick passage of time and how you might change your life um, if you knew that you could see the end in sight and that the end was right before you. And it's something that we've talked about here um, in our Halakha sessions, um, you know, the value of feeling like someone's almost holding a gun to your head and if you make a choice, you know, if you feel like the, the imminent um, impact of a choice you make that you would hopefully choose wisely. Um, and it's a, it's a powerful um, insight into kind of the reality of things. So just to share kind of those random stories, but as we head into 2022 and, you know, pray that the year is much better for us, um, and these are, you know, wonderful ways to kind of keep certain things in mind. Um, someone shared with me a lovely quote, which is, um, may the tears that you shed in 2021 um, be the water for the seeds you plant in 2022. I thought that was really beautiful and just share that with you. So anyway, I'm looking forward to another amazing session. I wish everyone a blessed 2022. Keep us in your prayers so we can continue um, our path to finishing all of the surahs. We have 44 to go, and I'm so excited about tonight's surah. So inshallah. Thank you for joining us. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah wa subhanallah al-aliyyil-azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. المصطفى الخاتم النبي الخاتم الأمين 
المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب آمين So inshallah today Surah Al-Anfal Um, before we delve in you know just thinking about in new year um, and subhanallah I think what occupies your mind as you think about coming time is often a very good measure of uh, the type of person I passionately I passionately wish that the two superpowers that exist in the world, the United States and Russia, stop killing Muslims at will. The United States, since 2001, has pretty much kills throughout the Muslim world at will, and it has become so common and so regular that no one even bothers reporting on it anymore, and it doesn't raise an eyebrow. And Russia kills in Syria at will, and they don't even, there's no accountability, there's no oversight. All the oversight mechanisms of the United Nations and the UN Charter and all the edifice of international law has broken down when it come when it now has come to the United States engaging in so-called targeted killings, targeted strikes around the Muslim world, exclusively the Muslim world and Russia doing the same in Syria. Two thousand and twenty-two, you can't help but wish that the third superpower of the world, China, stop exterminating imprisoning, torturing, harvesting the organs of Muslims at will, with impunity, an actual genocide rising to the level of a holocaust, again, of Muslims two thousand and twenty two 
I can't help but think of the Rohingyas and pray that they are able to be resettled back home and that their persecution ends not just by the Burmese, the Buddhist government of Burma, but also their persecution by their fellow Muslims because the Rohingyas, as they fled the genocide, are now in the prisons held in detention centers in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, in Jordan, all over the Muslim world. They're not treated with dignity. They're not treated with any type of honor. 2022, I pray with all my heart that we don't witness a new genocide against Muslims by Hindu nationalists in India. We don't hear of the daily incidents that involve the persecution, the imprisonment, the torture, and sometimes the killing of Muslims in Kashmir and in India by Hindu nationalists, again, with impunity because international law is doing nothing. Two thousand and twenty-two, I pray that the so-called custodian of the two holy sites, Saudi Arabia, stops killing Muslims in Yemen, the worst humanitarian disaster in the face of the earth caused by a Muslim country against another Muslim country. And what is the world doing? Selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Everyone wants Saudi money. And because we want Saudi money, Although President Biden promised to effectively not sell spare parts to the Saudis so they can't fly their planes that they bombed the Yemenis with, that promise was broken. And we have sold spare parts. And we have continued to resupply Saudi Arabia with missiles and bombs and all types of weaponry. Two thousand and twenty-two, you can't forget the Muslim scholars in prison all over the Muslim world. You can't forget that Salman al-Oda still sits in a Saudi prison for no crime whatsoever. You can't forget that the top scholars of the Muslim world are imprisoned in Muslim prisons all over the Muslim world. 2022, you can't forget that Emirati money has bought the conscience of so many Muslim scholars around the world. And it has become so common, so standardized, so regularized, 
that it doesn't raise an eyebrow anymore. And the fact that a particular Muslim leader or scholar or imam or mullah or teacher is in bed with the Emiratis, a state with one of the worst human rights records on the face of this earth, doesn't earn that person reprobation or condemnation or even isolation by fellow Muslims. Muslims, oh, consider it just a personal choice. Oh, but he does other good things, brother. Two thousand and twenty-two. I pray that Israel doesn't unleash in you murderous rampage against Palestinians. I pray that Israel stops violating the sanctity of the Aqsa Mosque. I pray that we don't move closer to the destruction of the Aqsa Mosque as Muslims sit powerlessly, powerlessly, ineptly, watching. 2022, I pray the betrayal of Palestinians by fellow Muslims all around the Muslim world ends. That Muslims wake up and, understand, and listen to the message of the Quran. that tells him you can't do that. Simple, straightforward. You can't sell a fellow Muslim and leave them to their fate against an aggressor and an occupier, a colonizer, and say it doesn't concern us. You can't. That's not Islam. Two thousand and twenty-two. Since the nineties, since the genocide in Bosnia, non-Muslims, non-Muslims, have dedicated billions of dollars, billions of donated dollars to the maligning and demonization of the Islamic faith. Families like the Murdoch family, the Trump family, the Maxwell family have donated, donated millions and millions of dollars to either spread the Zionist message in the world or the evangelical message in the world and to malign and demonize the Islamic faith. The funny thing is that Emirat has contributed 
money to the Islamophobic efforts. As I said in recently in the khutbah, it is now beyond dispute. It is a matter of absolute yaqeen that the Emirat contributed millions of dollars to supporting Islamophobic organizations and movements. On the other side, Muslims who are supposedly, who supposedly care about Islam, have not matched the funds of their foes, not even to the tune of 1%, not even to 1% of what the foes of Islam has spent to demonize Islam. So 2022, as you think of your weddings, as you think of your engagement parties, your Christmas parties, your birthday parties, as you think of whatever party you're planning, whatever vacation you're planning, whatever vacation home you're planning, think of that. Think of whether you're entitled to spend thousands of dollars celebrating yourself and your happiness when the enemies of Islam are spending so much money to murder your religion and you're sitting doing nothing. 2022, for years now, my wife shows me videos of orphaned children in Syria and Palestine just because they received a few dollars are smiling in camera and praying and doing dua for the measly dollars that were sent to them. I look at what they're wearing. I look at the background of the videos where they're living. And I'm ashamed Two thousand and twenty-two, as you make plans to spend money on your parties and your weddings and your engagements and your celebrations, think of these orphans. Think of what they have a right to, what they are due. Think of those of them who die because there's no money to treat them for the disease or to immunize them 
Think of those who are going to be trafficked because there's no money to protect them. Think of those who become prostitutes or their organs are harvested. As you decide to spend thousands of dollars on yourselves, think of them and then think in the hereafter when they confront you and you have the same orphan stand to say, why didn't you save my life? Why didn't you pay for the medicine? Why didn't you educate me? Why didn't you prevent me from being trafficked? If you would have sacrificed your party, it would have saved my life. Think of that. I might be accused of being a very depressing human being. I don't care. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not here to clean after people and wipe their behinds and tell them you're entitled. 2022. <sighs> Let's take a three minute break, and then we'll come back to Surat Al-Fal. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, I would say if only Muslims understood Surat Al-Imran. I can say the same thing about Surat Al-Anfal. Um, you don't find, unfortunately, in the cumulative interpretive traditions, things that, or discourses that um, allow you access to Surat Al-Anfal and the role that Surat Al-Anfal played. So, as we said before, Hijrah, and right after Hijrah, Surat al-Baqarah, challenging the idea of an entitled people, and clearly stating what are the conditions that make a people chosen by God. And as we know now, it is very clearly ethical grounds. Ali Omran addresses a defeat and emphasizes the role of Allah's ummah, Allah's nation. To be God's people, here is your function, here is your role. Between 
سورة البقرة عن سورة آل عمران سورة الأنفال عن سورة الأنفال according to the vast majority of authorities is revealed right after the battle of Uhud so it's fair to say that while Al-Umran is a commentary, sorry, it is revealed right after the Battle of Badr, not Uhud. It's fair to say that while Al-Umran is an education in the aftermath of the disappointments of Uhud, in the same way, Al-Anfal is an education after the ecstasy and joy of victory in the Battle of Badr. Now, so this would make one pause and think, how did Allah talk to people after this victory? And this is really a critical issue precisely as, we'll, as I'll point out because of the Anfal. So first, the surah is known as Surah Al-Anfal and usually Anfal are, is translated as spoils of war. Al-Nafl, Nafl, means something that is extra, a surplus. So if something is surplus, you can call it nafl. So as ziyada, something that is extra, we call it nafl, something that you volunteer, we also call it a nafl because it is more than what is an obligation or a duty. Um, in older Arabic, even an oath or yameen was sometimes referred to as nafl. So that's also why we call for, for instance, Salat al-Nafl. Salat al-Nafl meaning the sun, Salat al-Sunnah. It's an extra prayer. We refer to it as enough. Now, in the Battle of Badr, just to set up the, 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 the historical circumstance. So we know that right after the Hijra, the Muhajirun, the, the ones who, the, the migrants from Mecca, 
had given up all their worldly possessions because unless they had managed to hide something or sneak something or had money invested outside of Mecca that the Meccans couldn't put their hands on because the Meccans' condition for allowing them to leave was that they leave behind all their money, which was promptly confiscated by the Meccans. And that, as we've said before, creates a great deal of economic pressure on the natives of Medina. So not only are they now asked to adopt a new faith, but the settled people of Medina, the uns known as the Ansar, are forced to share their possessions, their wealth with the migrants. So it's exactly like you take in refugees. But instead of putting re refugees in detention centers as the Saudis do to the Rohingyas and to the Uyghurs or send them back to their persecutors, here the Ansar share everything with the Muhajirun. And, but the Ansar who have been traumatized by a hundred year civil war between the Aus and Khazraj are already destitute. It's already, they, they, they don't have much to share. The only really wealthy parties in Medina are the Jewish tribes who, as I explained before, had benefited from the civil war for many years. And there is no question that since Muslims have been, since the conspiracy, the plan to try to assassinate the Prophet and since Muslims had been expelled from Mecca after the years of persecution, that Muslims are fully aware that they have a grand enemy. And there is a lot of social stress in Medina because what later on become, become known as the hypocrites, the munafiqun, this is the party that saying, can listen, we are already, we've, we've already been subservient to Mecca. Medina, the, the, what used to be known as Yathrib, was never a competitor to Mecca. Mecca is much wealthier than we are. And can we afford not just to shelter these refugees coming from Mecca and their profit, but can we afford hostility to open hostility with Mecca. And so this, these tensions and you can imagine how uh, alive these issues would have been at the time. And it becomes Add to this another important part of the picture is that Mecca, as Mecca deals with 
its reputation among the tribes, the Arab tribes in the region, there is what you would expect sort of like, um, okay, yeah, you expelled these refugees and allowed them to go to Medina, but, you know, isn't this a strike against Mecca's prestige that ultimately, you know, so many people of the sons and daughters of the elite of Mecca had followed this man Muhammad and are now given asylum by Yathrib. And doesn't this take away from Mecca's prestige in the region. So Mecca is telling the tribes, well, it's, it's not just that we took their property, but the fact that they sought asylum in Yathrib is not going to amount to anything because we will destroy them. And Mecca, there is a lot of poetry, a lot, some of it had survived, that Mecca is the the poets of Mecca. The that that's the PR or uh, PR arm of the day and age. The famous poets of Mecca are composing poets about how vile Muhammad is, and how they're going to exterminate the rebels, and that it is just a matter of time. Okay, so what? By the customs of the age, that means the Meccans and the Medinians are fully aware that there is a presumption of warfare. And as I said before, and as anyone who's a scholar of international law knows that the old order, that there's always a presumption of warfare unless there is a peace treaty. So unless proven otherwise. And the only reason this presumption has changed in the modern age is because of the UN Charter. So actually, if you if there is a country that is not a signatory to the UN Charter, and the first articles of the UN Charter is that it's a it's a you take a covenant not to conduct your affairs through the use of force. So there's a prohibition against the use of force unless for a good cause, i.e. self-defense. And that's a very modern thing, and that's a product of a universal treaty. But before that treaty, not even that long ago, the presumption is a state of war, war of all against all, unless there is a treaty. So the Arabs are fully aware of this, and they know that since the Meccans had given no assurances of non-aggression. That means the rule is there could be aggression anytime. And then it becomes clear that there is an issue of who is going to take the first strike. And what is often left out of the books, unfortunately, is the, the, the anxiety in Medina, especially by the natives of the Medina, about the Meccans, well, the first strike is coming, but who's going to take the first strike? So 
upon hearing the 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 Prophet talking to especially the Ansar, the Muhajirun are already eager to take a first strike to to avenge the their their treatment, avenge their losses. You know, they they already have a feud with Mecca. But to bring the Ansar on board with the idea of a first strike is not a matter of simply announcing a decision. There is extensive shura that takes uh, takes place, and the Prophet ﷺ does not want to do take a first strike unless it is clear that the Ansar are on board, and that it's not going to break up the cohesion of this nascent early state which is a very minute, small state. Especially the younger folks, they are saying, well, if we, we need to send a very strong message to Mecca that we are not weak and that we are going to defend ourselves and that we're not an easy prey, we shouldn't wait around until Mecca finishes preparing its forces and organizing and so on, and showing up, showing up at our doorstep. But there is a considerable amount of opposition at the same time, a minority, but still a strong opposition to this idea and a lot of anxiety about it. So the first tactical decision is that we need to strengthen our military abilities. When they fought the Battle of Badr, while the Meccans had, by most reports, well over 100 steeds, the people of Medina had a single steed. As an instrument of war, that's like saying, you know, you go into a battle, 100 tanks against one tank. Well, you're obviously of very modest abilities. If all you have is one steed that can be counted, and it was known who the steed belonged to, and it was a, a, a private. It was the ownership of a, a a single person, a native of Medina, Abu Qutada. Anyway, so the first strike is to send a strong message to Mecca, and to recoup some of the losses, and to strengthen ourselves materially. And so the decision is made that we should target Mecca's lifeline is its trade. And the caravans of the summer and the winter that go either the direction of Yemen or the direction of Sham. And this is what makes Mecca extremely wealthy. 
and extremely capable. And so we must target one of these caravans and the decision is made to target the caravan that is returning from Isham. And as widely reported now that this caravan happened to be led by Abu Sufyan. The strike against the caravan, however, because there is sufficient controversy and anxiety, the decision to strike that car against this caravan in most historical sources say was leaked out. And this is a, a, an important point that I'm gonna comment on in a second. So it was leaked out and it reached Abu Sufyan. Whether it was leaked out by the Jewish tribes, whether it was leaked out by the so-called hypocrites or whether it was leaked out by its there are other lesser-known reports that say it was not accidentally leaked out, but it was purposefully leaked out. That the Prophet and his leadership, the, 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 the top companions, Ali and Abu Bakr and Omar and so on, didn't want the first strike to be against the caravan. They intentionally leaked out the information knowing that the caravan will get away. It's very interesting because we, we there's no way of knowing if it was accidentally leaked out, what is very interesting is that the Prophet ﷺ and his companions learned from this experience the critical importance of secrecy, which shows you that they were people that interacted with the world intelligently. You know, they, they, it, it wasn't just a bunch of emotions and feelings. If it was purposely leaked out, the implications are profound and numerous in that and especially for the message of Surat Al-Anfal, as we will see. Now, why is this very significant? Because the habit of Arabs at the time was when they raided a caravan and they only raided the caravans of an enemy. If you would raid, if all caravans indiscriminately, that's what was considered highway robbery. But if you raided caravans of people that knew that you are an enemy and that you are a fair target, so in other words, people have noticed that you can target them. That's what's considered an instrument of warfare. And 
if the information was leaked out, so uh, let's finish the thought about the habits of Arabs. So the habits of Arabs at the time is that if they leak, if they attack the caravan, they would pillage the caravan, they would take whatever merchandise, whatever property, whatever material the caravan carried, and it was each fighter and whatever they could carry. Whatever cannot be carried by hand, so you, you can take what you can carry. What you cannot carry, then it goes to the tribal chief for a decision. But whatever you can walk away with was considered yours. That's sort of the custom of the age. And so when the word gets out that we are targeting a caravan, there is a very interesting dynamic. There are Muslims who understand fully well that this is the beginning of that. If you're going to raid the caravan, Mecca is going to respond. And that means it's not a matter of pillaging. It's a matter now of serious warfare. We've moved into a new stage. There are those who are immature and excited about the, the material possessions that they can get from the raid. And they're not thinking beyond the implications of the raid. These are sort of like the, the, the prototype Arab, a tribal individual who basically has the attitude of, you know, I'll enjoy this moment in life and I don't care what tomorrow brings. You know, I, the, 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 the type of Arab who would say, you know, uh, who basically expected to be killed or kill at any moment in any feud because life was about feuding and about what you can enjoy the moment that you can enjoy it and you don't think much about tomorrow. And then there are those who are not Muslim but pretended to be Muslim because they are thinking of what they can get from pillaging a caravan. So, and, and these are a very dangerous group of people because they're in it for the money. Now, add to this a fourth group, people who are saying they're not the majority, they didn't carry the day because the, the majority said, chose the first strike option, but they're saying, listen, we can't afford a war with Mecca. What the heck are we doing? We shouldn't raid the caravan. And they didn't change their mind. But nevertheless, went out, some of them went out targeting the caravan. Now, so it's, there are, although there's a mass mobilization, and for those who say that the information was leaked intentionally, 
often point out to the fact that there was a mass mobilization. If you're going to raid a caravan, normally you would send a sariya. A sariya means 30 fighters, 40 fighters. But when you ask for all able-bodied men to volunteer and you go out to battle, not just with men, but also with women who are going to be mending the wounded and so on, that doesn't look like a caravan raid. That looks like a battle. But with the mass mobilization, consistent with the actual numbers of converts, they number 113. And again, those who said that the information was leaked intentionally often say that the order was to bring, if you have whatever, you know, the best military gear, bring it along. So it wasn't, you know, just bring your, your swords and, a, and your, a, a, because it's going to be a quick strike and, and it was draw. We're going to hit and run. But it was, you know, bring whatever camels you, you can, bring the, the only horse that we have, the steed that we have, and, and so on. Now, as is well known now, the, the caravan itself gets notice of this impending strike and Abu Sufyan changes the route and makes it back to Mecca safely and the Meccans say, oh, Muslims are thinking of doing a first strike, we'll show them. Of course, the, 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 you know, in all the Sira books you read, don't, you know, they tell you that the Meccans organized an army of a thousand people well, you can't organize an army of a thousand people overnight. You can't. It, 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 the Meccans didn't have a standing army like, you know, the standing armies of today. So it's not like Abu Sufyan came and they said, oh, they wanted to raid the caravan, so let's, a thousand people, let's go out and fight. What this tells you is that the Meccans had a thousand soldiers armed to the hilt, a hundred steeds, is that they already had prepared an army that was getting ready to invade Medina. So all they did is they mobilized the army that they had already prepared. And that's why the response was so fast. And they said, well, they're thinking of doing the first strike. Well, we'll show them. We're going to exterminate them. And so you have 113 fighters now aware that there are over a thousand Meccan and the arming the Meccans are far better armed. They have the most expensive chain, metal uh, gear. They have the ex most expensive shields, the swords, arrows, etc., etc. So the, it, it's very disproportionate, the arming of the two. At this point, a faction 
of the people that were pro-first strike wanted to go back and started saying a hundred against a thousand those people have horses, those people have camels, they have arrows, they have best this is going to be a suicide mission this is very different than raiding a caravan we want to withdraw so the Prophet ﷺ held a council of war. Again, Shura was taken, and the majority said, no withdrawal, we proceed. If we withdraw now, the moral defeat will be so devastating, it will be a matter of time before the Meccans march through Medina and destroy Medina completely. Because you go back as the, the sort of innate wisdom of these people of knowing that the psychological war is every bit as important as the actual material war. So the elders convinced enough of the younger population that it will be highly dishonorable and that it will be a severe moral defeat if we withdraw. And now that it's clear that we have mobilized and we've asked for all the volunteers we could to join us, we, we've committed. And we must see this thing to to the to the end. The grumpy minority stayed in the the the, the Abdullah ibn Ubay faction and the likes of them did not volunteer to go out in the Battle of Badr. So unlike the Battle of Uhud where they initially volunteered and then withdrew midway in the Battle of Badr, they, were, they didn't even join. They weren't even a presence in the first place. So all the discussions that are taking place are taking place between those who might have converted to Islam but thinking of spoils of war and thinking of the material gain they can make from raiding the caravan. And for those people, they're the first to say, listen, we, we want to withdraw. And add to that some people who had rational, well-founded concerns that this is not going to go well. How, how are we going to fight this battle and possibly win? But the opinion of the majority carried the day, and there is, at Badr, there's a, a well, and there's disagreement in the sources as to whether Muslims managed to get to this well first or the Meccans managed to get to this well first. 
as we'll see, this is sort of a minor point later on in the surah. Nevertheless, if Muslims manage to get to the welfares, that means that they would have a watering source and they deny the enemies this watering source. If Meccans got to it, that means that Muslims suffered thirst because the Meccans then had controlled the watering source. All right. And then, as we know, the battle proceeds and it's an astounding victory for Muslims. The Muslim army crowds the Meccan army, the much larger, much better equipped Meccan army, in a spectacular battle. And the Meccans withdraw after having suffered a resounding defeat. Most of the fighters were young people and the way that the battle proceeded is that the, the younger, stronger folks were the front line and the uh, reinforcements were the older folks. So right after the battle, there is a debate or a controversy, the younger folks say, well, we fought, we're the ones who actually fought. The older folks were reinforcements standing behind, but because we did the actual fighting, then we should be entitled to the spoils of war. Then whatever was left behind from the withdrawing Meccan army should be ours. And when we talk about spoils of war, often people, because we, we, we don't teach Muslims a lot of history, you know, you wonder, okay, well, what type of spoils are we talking about? Well, things like you, you get a valuable sword or a valuable uh, chain metal that you wear for protection. You could sell that and these things are pricey. They cost a lot of money. And the money that comes from selling something like that could feed your family for a year. So the younger folks said, well, by the customs and traditions of Arabs, the fighter gets to take whatever they can carry their, in their arms where most of the actual spoils of war in the Battle of Badr were things that people could carry in their arms. In other words, they're movable property. There, there's very little that fighters couldn't actually just carry and walk away with. Shields and swords and you know equipment and gear and stuff like that. Um, the Meccans didn't leave behind a lot of steeds. When they withdrew, they withdrew with most of their horses. So, and even, you know, the few horses that were left behind, an actual fighter could get on the horse and say, well, that's now mine. And although there is this victory, but there is also this debate going on about the spoils of war.
And of course, as you would expect, when it is the younger people that did most of the fighting, most of the fighters happen to be natives of Medina, not the poor Muhajirun. We are always focused on the heroes, right? Ali, who who's a Muhajir, of course, and young, and a knight like no other, or Abu Bakr, or Omar, and so on. But the overall picture is that it is the natives, which would have meant that the natives saw this as we, we've already sacrificed so much taking in, taking in these refugees. The economy of Medina is already severely overburdened by the fact that we had to create jobs and homes and whatnot for these refugees. So in their mind, well, this is such a small compensation for all the sacrifices we've made. Really? You're going to deny us this? We're entitled. You know, the Prophet ﷺ is torn. He knows that according to the customs and traditions of Arabs, those who are saying what we've picked up on the battlefield is ours are right. But that would mean a general unfairness to everyone who volunteered and took logistical roles including including people who were mending the wounded, which included women, incidentally, which would have then no share, including those people who respected the, the orders of the Prophet and stood back as reinforcements in case the first line breaks, then they would have to, you know, uh, engage, including people like arrowmen. Now, it's fascinating that Surat al-Anfal addresses the Anfal, right? What is the reason for the defeat on the Battle of Uhud? The same Anfal. So, and this is subhanAllah, you don't find this in, in any book, but it is astounding. Allah warned them, told them in Surah Al-Anfal, the Anfal, are, this issue is very critical. Lo and behold, the battle right after this one, the reason that they are defeated is because of the Anfal. a very powerful lesson when Allah tells you what's right and wrong and you decide to ignore that to indulge the ego 
and its demands. Yes, I know Allah said X, Y, and Z, but my feelings, but what I want, but my entitlements, an extremely powerful lesson. So why did I focus on this context? Because Surah Al-Anfal begins with a slap on the face, with a lesson that was ignored in Uhud as people put their desires and egos first. You are arguing about the Anfal, you are arguing about the spoils, well, let me tell you. Forget the issue of the spoils because all the spoils belong to Allah and the Prophet. The Prophet himself didn't dare say it. In fact, the Prophet was extremely concerned that the idea of public property didn't exist. That comes much later. For the declaration to be made that as a principle, it's all public property. So forget your entitlements. Forget your claims. Forget all what you're arguing you deserve because you've earned it. Forget it. So when does Allah begin with Surah Al-Infal right with a slap in the face? It says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَنْفَالِ They ask you about the Anfal, meaning they're debating about the Anfal. قُلْ الْأَنْفَالُ لِلَّهُ وَالرَّسُولِ We'll tell them none of it is yours. You'll see what Surah Al-Infal does because that's the it creates a moral legal presumption. It all belongs not to you. So and then so what does it say? It none of it is yours. So Fear God. Taqullah. Stop talking about what you're entitled to. Stop talking about what's yours. Stop talking about what you deserve. Because I've done this and I've done that. Taqullah. Waslihu zata baynikum. What you should focus on is not what you are entitled to and what you deserve, but but on the bonds of brotherhood between yourselves.
mend your relationships with each other because that's what matters. Stop thinking about yourselves and saying, well, you know, the women didn't, don't, shouldn't have a share. They didn't participate in actual fighting. The older generation don't, shouldn't have a share. They didn't participate in actual fighting. We've sacrificed so much. We've given so much. We don't, w- 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 when is it our turn to be taken care of? Stop that. All of that is not taqwa. Focus not on what you're entitled to, but on your relationships, the bonds of brotherhood. And you'll see how important this is to Surah Al-Anfal as the Surah, as we take the entire journey with the Surah. And discipline yourself with surrender. Obey, meaning surrender. If you are believers, it's easy to claim that you're a believer. It's easy to claim you're a believer and then not adjust your behavior at all and not be a different human being. It's easy to say, I'm a Muslim believer and then talk about your entitlements and you know what you've done. But that's not the way it works with Allah. If you are believers, you will stop talking about your entitlements and you will focus on your the relationship of a brother to brother and a sister to sister and a brother to sister. And then it goes beyond and says something that becomes extremely impactful in Muslim theology. The definition of a mu'min. Who is a true believer? إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا ذُكِرَ اللَّهُ وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَإِذَا تُلِيَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُهُ زَادَتْهُمْ إِيمَانًا وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ الَّذِينَ يُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةَ وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يَنْفِقُونَ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ حَقًّا لَهُمْ دَرَجَاتٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ وَمَغْفِرَةٌ وَرِزْقٌ كَرِيمٌ So it comes and says, let me tell you who the true believers are. Yeah. There, you, there are many, all of you claim to be believers, including those who pretended to convert to Islam just for the spoils, including those who say, yeah, we pray, you know, we're believers and so on, but they, they focus on what they're entitled to and, and the sacrifices they've made. God says, the true believers, the real believers, are those when Allah's name when they remember Allah, when there is a remembrance or a mention of Allah, wajilat kulubuhum. Wajilat kulubuhum means you know that that when you're you get goosebumps, 
when you get that sense of gulp in your throat. So it takes you to an emotive response that is not verifiable legally. This is for you to reflect upon. Do you have wajalil qalb? When you hear Allah's words, when you think of Allah, when you think of your death, when you think of the hereafter, do you get goosebumps? Do you get a gulp in your throat? If no, why not? And remarkably, it leaves you with that, saying, take this, go reflect on it. The Prophet is not going to go and say, you have wujud, you don't have wujud. But this is for you. So, first, it's amazing that it comes and says, here, this is an internal measure that is between you and yourself and Allah and no one else. Wujul al-qalb. Wa تُلِيَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُهُ زَادَتْهُ إِيمَانًا وَعَلَىٰ رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ And when they hear Allah's verses, Muslim commentators paused at زَادَتْهُ إِيمَانًا So, how can faith increase? Well, if you hear Allah's words and sometimes you respond well, sometimes it touches your heart. Other times it maybe strikes you and you say, really? When you're being honest, is there really hereafter? I'm not sure. Is there really? Allah, do I really know? Then you need ziyadat al-iman. Again, an internal measure between you and yourself and Allah. Do you want to understand Allah's words? Or do you think you're fine living your life without it? When you do try to understand Allah's words, do they actually make a difference in your life? Or do they go in one ear and out the other? Because you see, your attitude towards the spoils of war, like your attitude towards all material things, and like your attitude towards anything that you think you've earned, as we will see in Surah Al-Anfal, because it goes back and it delivers an amazing message about this. Anything that you think you've earned, your attitude towards all of these things is a direct byproduct or directly affected by the nature of your iman. And if you live with Allah's revelation 
none of it affected by what Allah says in Allah's book, then we have a problem. Then the chances are you don't experience goosebumps or a gulp in the throat when you remember Allah. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll say, yes, I don't. Maybe once in a long while, you know, I'll get a passing, oh my God. But regularly, and if you're honest with yourself, the Quran is not pulsating in your heart. Now, people, this is in the aftermath of a victory. Normally, what you would expect after a victory is congratulations, you're the best people in the world. I, you know, you are God's soldiers. You are going to straight to heaven. No problems. That's what you would expect. Because this is a book from God and not from a human being, no, the message comes after a victory with an enormous amount of introspection. Yes, you're victorious. Yes, you achieved a miraculous feat. Yes, you defeated an army 10 times your size. Yes, yes, yes to all of that. But are you real believers? Do you understand where your victory came from? As we will see. And وَعَلَى اللَّهِ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ So, الوجول, الازدياد, والتوكل, three elements. And they understand what Surah Al-Umran will come to affirm in the absolute, Allahu Malikul Mulk, Allah is the owner of all mulk, that their affairs is in Allah's hands. At-Tawakkul. Ultimately, leaving it up to Allah. Established prayer, as always, is standard, so that's the fifth. And the sixth, which the Quran always mentions alongside prayer, and they spend in Allah's way. It flipped the paradigm. You feel like heroes and you are saying we were heroes we beat an army much larger than us by some reports three times our size other reports ten times our size whatever the 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 actual report the actual historical reality is much better than armed than us we're entitled to spoils no you're entitled to spend in Allah's way it's not what you make, it's what you give. Surah Al-Anfal 
as we will see. came pushing the party that became known as the hypocrites of Medina to align more clearly as hypocrites of Medina. In other words, it, it made it clear that there is not much space we can we can we can negotiate with these people. These are very serious people. They don't talk about what they're, they're, what they're entitled to and what their God, their God is constantly saying. There is another life that you need to focus on. This is not it. These are the true believers. This is uh, verse 4. And those are the ones who are elevated with Allah. If only Muslims would understand Surah Al-Anfal. Okay. Then... Allah starts Allah starts unpacking the moral message breaking it down كما أخرجك ربك من بيتك بالحق وإن فريقا من المؤمنين لكارهون This is five. يجادلونك في الحق بعد ما تبينك أنما يساقون إلى الموت وهم ينظرون This is six. وإن يعيدكم الله إحدى الطائفتين أنها لكم وتودون أن غير ذات الشوكة تكون لكم ويريد الله أن يحق الحق بكلماته ويقطع دابر الكافرين ليحق الحق ويبطل الباطل ولو كره المجرمون So now the breaking down of the ethical message. So Allah starts saying, the issue is not what you think you deserve or what you think you're entitled to. The issue is understanding the nature of tawakkul and the nature of iman. Remember that Allah caused you to leave your homes, meaning the hijrah. And it's remarkable that the act of persecution, so Allah is saying, you think you were persecuted and kicked out of your homes. Well, have you thought, have you understood, have you comprehended that this is part of Allah's plan. The true tawakkul is to say whatever Allah brings, 
whatever Allah decrees. And to think about what you give and not what you take. So, as Allah caused you to actually be expelled from your homes, and Allah knows that for you, this was very painful. And for you, this was not pleasurable. Similarly, there are some of you who wanted to avoid fighting this battle at all costs. There are some of you, this is the minority that we've talked about that said this is suicide, we shouldn't go forward. So much so that they argued with you. يُجَادِلُونَكَ It's not that they were, they, they were arguing with the Prophet. We can't do this. As if they were being marched forward to be executed. This is how they felt. They felt like it's going to be a slaughter. They're going to be massacred. Why should we abide by the opinion of the majority when it's going means it's our extermination? Why should we follow the Prophet when the Prophet is surely leading us to our death? And then there are some of you that understood that there are two options. Either we raid a caravan or we fight a host, an army. And they were praying, Allah knew that they were praying, begging Allah, let it be raiding the caravan and not fighting against an entire host, an entire army. Let it be that we are able to reach Abu Sufyan's caravan so we can go back home with whatever we carry off and not the other option. Allah knows that you're motivated by a range of complex desires. Some of you hate the fact that you left Mecca. Some of you hate the fact that you're sharing everything with the refugees. Some of you are extremely anxious about fighting the all-powerful, the almighty Mecca and the hostility with Mecca. Some of you are thinking of the spoils of war. But the real issue is your relationship to Allah your understanding. So it's as if Allah is saying all of that doesn't matter. What matters is your the definition of Iman. Are you among those who experience wujul al-qalb, wajal al-qalb, the goosebumps? Are you among those who have certitude 
an understanding of the centrality of Allah's words. Are you among those who understand what it means to rely on Allah? At-tawakkul. Are you among those who understand what prayer is and understand that it is about giving and not taking? Al-infaq. Because what Allah wants, and look at how Allah underscores this in 7 and 8. The Arabic is amazing. Grammatically, it's amazing. So, it says, so first, but what Allah wants is to uphold al-haq, truth, with Allah's words. So the centrality of Allah's words and defeat those who the, the 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 opposite party, the ungodly party. And then So Allah underscores again that Allah's trajectory, Allah's goal is al haq is truth. Which, in, if you read commentaries and books and theologies, Al-Haq, truth which includes justice in all its connotations. Al-Haq, to establish what is right and truthful, what is hasan and not qabih, what is beautiful and not ugly. And to defeat what is wrong and ugly. Even if al-Mujrimun, those who are, Mujrim is often translated as criminal. Even those who have no notion of what truth or justice or beauty or husn or qubh is. As Ibn Arabi very nicely puts it, So this is what Allah wants. The question is, what is the purpose of your life? What is it that you want? Is your life about ihqaq al-haq? Upholding the truth? If it is, then you are a rabbani. If it is not, if your life is about indulgence, number one, whatever it is, your career, your children, your money, whatever it is, it's not about ihqaq al-haq. Then you don't share the same goal and purpose with Allah. So Ibn Arabi, the part, I forgot exactly how he words it, but it is as straightforward. Do you share the same goals? You can't claim 
to be on the party of God if you don't share the same goals. If you have say, if you say, I have divergent goals, well, it's a divorce. Then we can't be married. You and God. So, yeah, you are so proud of yourself because you're victorious. You're so happy that you're victorious. But hold on. Is your victory, is your happiness about ihqaq al-haq? Or is it about your ego and your pride and the poetry you're going to compose about you're the best fighters and that your tribe is like no other and your family is like no other and that no one is like, you know, all the stuff that Arabs used to brag about and, you know, put their opponents about. What is it about? So then what we saw something similar to Al-Umran, which again comes later, but its first treatment is here. Istastaghithuna rabbakum. Um, one thing I—it's I, a good thing I checked my notes. One thing I did forget. Some of the people that argued with the Prophet they presented what appeared like a very good rational argument. They said, لو أخبرتنا بالقتال لأخذنا العدة وأكملنا الأهبة أو الأهبة depending. That we weren't counting on a full-scale battle. And if you would have told us that this could escalate into a full military confrontation instead of targeting a caravan, we would have been better prepared and better armed. On the surface, it sounds like a very rational, good rational argument, except for the decision was made this argument was made and vetted out and it was rejected. And it was rejected for very good reasons. As was reported, well, it, it's reported variously. Some say it was Umar ibn Khattab who said it. Some say it was Ali ibn Abi Talib who said it, depending on what sources you're reading. That we know what you own. You don't have an extra sword that you could have brought or a horse in store that you could have brought. What you have here now is actually all what you possess for the purpose of warfare. So the claim that 
we would have been better armed doesn't hold water because you don't actually own anything to bring. So one of them, I forgot his name, responded and said, okay, fine, fine, fine. It's not better armed. We should, could have said goodbye to our children. We would have said farewell because we're going because he's thinking we're going on a suicide mission. So I would have said goodbye to my children. And that's an indulgence. Because sometimes performing your duty doesn't mean you get to do all the things that you want to do including saying goodbye to your children. Duty calls. Okay. Is, uh, did I skip? Oh, we'll cover that. We didn't skip it. Okay. Okay. So let's move to استستغيثون ربكم فاستجاب لكم أني ممدكم بألف من الملائكة مردفين depending on the قراءة مردفين or مردفين anyway this is nine وما جعل الله إلا بشرا لتطمئن به قلوبكم وما النصر إلا من عند الله إن الله عزيز حكيم this is now ten إذ يخشيكم النعاس أمنة منه وينزل عليكم من السماء ماء ليطهركم به ويذب عنكم الرشة الشيطان وليربط على قلوبكم ويثبت به الأقدام إذ يوحي ربك إلى الملائكة أني معكم فثبتوا الذين آمنوا سألقي في قلوب الذين كفروا الرعب فاضربوا فوق الأعناق واضربوا منهم كل بنان This is 12 ذلك بأنهم شاقوا الله ورسوله وما يشاقق الله ورسوله فإن الله شديد العقاب. So this takes us to 30. So what what is the message here? So Allah says, I am aware that you are that so many of you started begging Allah. Tastaghithun is istighatha is to when you call, it's not when you do dua, it is when you beg for help. So, like if, if someone is having a heart attack and you do istighatha, meaning you're begging for help, it's an urgent, feverish call for help. So, I know that you were, your, your, your detention and worry reached the point that you are begging Allah for help. And the Prophet ﷺ then tells you, it is as if Allah will send a thousand angels to aid you. Now, I've alluded this in Ali Amran, but there is a huge debate like Ali Amran in the Islamic tradition, whether the angels, whether normally you're often taught that Allah sent angels to fight. 
But actually, there's a huge debate in the Islamic tradition whether angels fought or whether they were just angels. The idea of angels being there was just for moral support. But they did no fighting. Um, so Arazi, for instance, has a long, he reports all the opinions and has a long discussions and his conclusion is that the angels didn't fight. And for the same reasons that I shared with you in Ali Amran, that a single angel can defeat the armies of the world. So to, to say that a thousand angels fought an army of a thousand Meccans and didn't exterminate the entire thousand Meccans is inconceivable. And add to that is that the reports that said the angels fought, like there is a poor report attributed to Omar, radiallahu an, that um, that they knew the people killed by angels by a burn mark left on their bodies, rather than a strike of a sword. These reports were change of transmission wise were are all problematic so they're 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 part of the the um the um lore of medieval narrations that often contain an enormous amount of exaggeration um but that have many transmission issues um there is another report attributed again to Omar where he says um, or that, that in the day of Badr we don't doubt that angels were present. Now he says angels were present not that angels fought. But after that, as to any other day other than the day of bed, we don't know. Allah Alam, God knows best. So the the opinion that often gets omitted in, in the modern age that Allah mentions angels as the Quran says لتثبيت القلوب or لتطمئن القلوب so to, to give you a sense of confidence and assurance and that the presence of angels was felt as the presence of angels are felt in every circle of knowledge, every halaqa of knowledge, or every halaqa in which you sit to study the Quran, the presence of angels are felt. But they don't, if they don't actually engage in a material manifestation. Now, and again, two things, that Allah brings a sense right before the battle, Allah brings a sense of tranquility upon their hearts. There is a report um, from Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu that says, 
لقد رأيتنا في يوم بدر وما فينا إلا أخذه النوم that on the day of Badr or the night of Badr I looked around and saw that everyone had fallen asleep except the Prophet كان قائما يصلي تحت الشجر except the Prophet spent the entire night worshipping under a tree um, so that the, only the Prophet didn't sleep there is a sort of a, an, a report that I've read in the more the um, that this tree the tree of Badr um, survived this is in, in, in narrated in um, one of the English Orientalists or, or German Orientalists, I don't remember. I have the book here, um, who narrated this. He says that the the tree, the tree of Badr, that the tree in which the Prophet spent the entire night worshiping under, stood, existed until the first the the uh, the second kingdom of al saud cut it down because the wahhabis said that people were going to this tree and touching it for blessings and they thought that this is a form of search so they cut it down um if true it's a historical travesty I mean, can you imagine for centuries this tree survives as a tree that the Prophet ﷺ spent the night of bed worshipping under until these guys come along and they think they know better than the entire generation of Muslims, so they wipe it out like they wiped the homes of the companions and all the other Islamic Okay. So look at twelve. Is you hear a book ill malaikati any makum for the bitul ladina amen? The role of the angels is to beat, is to give. Aid and give a sense of empowerment, the blessings, the madad, to those who are fighting. And that Allah put the feeling of fear and weakness in the heart of those who are fighting a rob, terror, in the hearts of those who are fighting believers. Because the shikak, the idea of shakallah rasulullah, you should, it's used here in Surah Al Anfal, but the, the idea of any person that sort of bears an animosity to Islam in Islamic theology centuries later. 
became described as Yushaqiqullah which means someone who is like someone who is a sworn enemy. It's a horrible status to be in. So if again Muslims would have been writing their own history, you would know the figures and characters in Islamic history who were given this horrible label as Yushaqoona Allah Rasul that they they were such immoral human beings that they were considered you know of, of the the lowest if if you're not it's it's unfortunate that you know it's not even part of our vocabulary anymore we when you say to someone today Yushaqoona Rasul said okay so what does that mean it, it means you, you're you're a horrible immoral human beings that, that ethically are just at the opposite ends of... Okay, so... Now, are you? do you notice what's happening in Surah Al-Infal so far? Is the discourse is underscoring that the victory Although you're jubilant, but not, don't let it go to your heads because the victory was Allah's. You ignore the numerous ways that Allah affects things. So, the Rashid Rida says or Muhammad Abdul, because it's Muhammad Abdul's tafsir reported by Rashid Rida, that the implications of this are profound because then you would understand that when someone is inspired to invent something, you can't ignore the role that Allah plays in it. When people get an idea on how to improve irrigation or improve farming and that studying who Allah aids to rise and who Allah causes to fall. The point of Muhammad Abdu in this is that Muhammad Abdu was trying to understand why the West became a dominant civilization while Islam crumbled. The Islamic civilization crumbled. And Muhammad Abdu says, listen, in the same way that Allah could make an army lose heart and not want to fight while another army is daring and in, and inventive and ingenious and comes up with ideas as to you know how to solve the challenges of a battle in the same way that also Allah gives, inspires people with the ideas that make a material difference in how civilizations ascend and others fall. And that you should always study Allah's will 
in inspiring human achievements to understand. So what Muhammad Abdu said, the, the famous statement that he repeated from Rafa'at Tahtawi, when I went to France, I saw Islam without Muslims, and in Egypt, there are Muslims without Islam. It, it, that's the idea, is that look at ihqaq al-haq. Ihqaq al-haq. What Allah wants is to uphold the principle itself. So if your society is full of injustice and inequity, not haq, then don't be surprised if Allah doesn't give you the material means, the type of ideas that would actually lift you and change your condition. The entire, the entire uh, this is all remarkably connected with the entire inspiration that the pursuit of knowledge is like so in same in the same way that Allah says get ready for battle the way that you also get ready for battle is to pursue knowledge and that when you in the same way that if you do your homework preparing for battle Allah gives you courage and puts fear in the hearts of your enemy. If you do your job in the pursuit of knowledge, Allah will inspire you to make the types of discovery in medicine, in farming, and all the things that Muslims made advances in, you know, including algebra and mathematics and all of that. that Allah will then aid that because that is part of I'dad al-Udda li'izzat al-Islam so it's 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 sort of difficult when you're to communicate to the extent to which you find the verses from Surah Al-Anfal seeps into the entire culture that created Dar al-Hikmah the, in, in, during the Abbasid era that created the entire translation movement, that created the entire obsession with libraries and the building of libraries in the Islamic civilization, that created the entire funding, the awqaf that funded the leaps and bounds in optics and geometry and algebra and medicine, uh, and including the, the science of dissection, which was first developed by Muslims, that it, it was Surat al-Anfal sort of became like it sprouted the seeds for a lot of these later movements in ways that Muslims today, it, it's very, you know, they're completely forgotten because as I've said a million times, Muslims do not own their history. When you don't own your history, you don't own your memory. Can you imagine if I come to you and I am I come to you as a colonizer. Let's say you you're you know you're you're a man or a woman 
and I come to you and I want to dominate you. I want to control you because I want to use you for my own purposes. I want to use you for my own needs. So what I do is I, I construct your memory. Your memory is actually not yours. So you go around talking about my rights, my wants, my desires, my entitlements, and I sit there and I watch you and I keep chuckling because it's pathetic. You think these are you think these are your wants, your desires, your whatever, your entitlements, but your memory is not yours. So you're completely if you're completely fake. Everything you are thinking, I've implanted the seeds. Yes, some of it could come be your true emotions, like, you know, some things hurt you, some things give you pleasure. So you react to it. Yeah, that's genuinely yours. I don't deny you that. But your memory as to what your family was, who you are, what your education is, what your identity is, but what you, everything that defines you as a human being, I've planted. And then we talk about, oh, what is, what is the future of Islam? ABCs. You know, it's as simple as that. Straightforward as that. What time is it? Let's take a three-minute break. So, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You notice that in verse 11, there's a reference here to rain falling. And just as a sidebar, um, the um, so the Quran refers to Allah sending rain, and that this rain plays a symbolic role. To to purify you and to cleanse you from the defilements of shaitan. Um, if it was the Kuffar, if it was the Meccans who controlled the well of Badr, then there are reports that say that the Muslims in that battle experienced thirst and Allah sent rain as relief to them. If it was the Muslims, as most sources say, that controlled the well at Badr, then the role that the rain, the practical or the pragmatic role that the rain played is that in the desert especially, the, um, often if the sand is soft, it's very hard to walk on the sand or to fight a battle on the sand. And rain uh, gives... 
um, firmness to this ground to the ground. It makes the ground more firm and easier to walk on or march on or fight on. What's interesting here is that Allah says that the that the symbolic role of the the rain is something that can only be understood um, spiritually, if you will. That it it is. It, experiencing rain falling at that moment must have given Muslims, aside from any pragmatic purpose like thirst or firmness of ground, um, a, a, a sense of purification, a sense of that it's as if Allah is cleansing them before battle. Um, anyway. Okay. And then you notice 15 and 16 underscoring that which is again very fascinating when you when you think of what happened in the battle of uhud that allah reminds muslims that if you are true believers you will never run away from battle and Stand firm if you withdraw to continue fighting for tactical reasons, that's one thing, but actually panicking and withdrawing in a panic because of fear of death is not what a mu'min does. A mu'min doesn't fear death. And if you don't fear death, then there is no reason to run away. You're not trying to save your life. Now, the role of, of now it's interesting because we know in the Battle of Uhud, that's precisely what happens that causes a collapse and a defeat. So again, it is amazing when you think that this is revealed before Uhud and the moral import of this is that when you read enough literature, Islamic literature, you discover that it became um, sort of a, a, a um, it created a, a norm in, in, in the traditions of Islam that people who would run in battle, whether it was even sometimes battles for not a good cause, like the fitna, like a civil war. But the idea of running away in battle, period, would 
become a dishonorable memory plaguing an individual and his progeny for generations to come. So in, in literature, and especially in poetry, you know, among the things that uh, would be noted about someone is, oh, well, you know, uh, this person cannot be a reliable transmitter of hadith, or this person is not a reliable scholar, because in the battle of such and such, they ran away. Um, And it contributed to the literature of Futuwa, which had a di- which was a direct influence on the emergence of the um, the institution of knighthood in the West. It's a it's a huge topic, and it's a fascinating topic. And again, if we were the ones who were writing our history, we would know a, a great deal about this. Uh, but you know, it, it's again the the internal historian that that looks within. Anyway, so the institu- the, the whole Futuwa practice and its influence on the emergence of knighthood eventually in Europe, and the idea of you know the 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 uh, that if someone runs away in battle, they would become marked and. People wouldn't even marry their daughters to this person. Um, something that, again, is completely lost in the Islamic civilization. But beyond fi- warfare and fighting, it also became an ethic in among Muslim travelers, the explorers of frontier property, uh, frontier lands. So Muslims who traveled to India and beyond India, it's remarkable because if you, or the travels of Ibn Battuta, they were always refer to the idea that a Muslim doesn't withdraw. A Muslim relies on Allah and goes ahead. Um, it permeates the whole norms of talabul ilm that if you dedicate yourself to the investigation of a field or a study of a field, you don't give up. You stick with it until you achieve your goal. I am, you know, evidence for me, it's overwhelming that these are the types of norms and ethics that created the Islamic civilization. And because we don't, we are not the ones who've created our own memory for modern Muslims, we've completely lost that because, of course, outsiders are not interested in telling us about, you know, every once in a while you'll have a historian that will write a book uh, about the, you know, the Futuwa literature and its effects on the emergence of knighthood in England. Um, you know, I think there's actually a book like that. If I, I don't remember exact, the exact title. Was, but, it, you know, it's, an, it's something that is 
far in between and often gets ignored by um, other Western historians that are writing Islamic history. And we don't invest in our educational institutions, so there are no real Muslim historians. And the few Muslim historians that exist, one of the saddest things that I've learned about is that one of the very few Muslim historians that are actually highly respected, I learned had just sold out to the Emiratis. He, the Emiratis offered him uh, Emirati citizenship, and he's accepted, and everything he's, and he's accepted because I, I've known this guy for a long time, and like me, um, you know, every time I would meet him, every time I would see him, he would complain bitterly about how he's in debt because he spent everything he owns on books, uh, how he took it upon himself to single-handedly save Islamic manuscripts. Uh, you know, we, we just, we so boring because we just sound like each other every time. And I think after years of, of, uh, doing it, I think he just finally gave up. Um, because ever since he got Emirati citizenship and accepted Emirati money, everything that's coming out of his mouth is pretty much now worthless. Uh, as opposed to his actual scholarship, I'm sure now all his debts are paid off. I'm sure now he probably has built the library that he's always dreamt of to house his books. Um, he reminds me a bit of Nasruddin al-Tusi when he sold out to the Mongol invasion, invaders for the sake of his library and observatory. Um, but, you know, if, if wealthy Muslims have the attitude of, you know, talking about a scholar, I say, I'm not going to pay his salary. What do you expect? You know, it's garbage. What do you expect? I, I can't get myself to name him because I consider him a friend for so many years and I mean, okay. Okay, so oh yeah, so I'm, I was emphasizing that this ethic of yes, it is Allah's victory, but that in no way removes your investment in the rules of causation and that just because it is up to Allah whether to put fear in the hearts of your enemy it is up to Allah whether ultimately to work things to your favor or not but that in no way changes the fact that you must do your part and doing your part means perseverance 
and courage. It's exactly sort of the 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 type of daring ethic that you would expect in a discoverer, in an explorer, in a and in, in in a in a fighter. And then along comes and says فَلَمْ تَقْتُلُوهُ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ قَتَلَهُ وَمَا رَمَيْتَ إِذْ رَمَيْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ رَمَى وَلِيُبْلِي الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مِنْهُ بَلَاءً حَسَنًا إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ This is uh, 17. Anyway, we'll come to this point later. Okay, so... Then Allah comes and in the psychology of post-victory, Allah says the real test after victory is to understand that although you were the instrumentality, but Allah acts through you so in fact as far as you're concerned you're not the one who did the killing you're not the one who as I say you know through the arrow or through the spear but Allah did there is a tradition that is often you find in a lot of the sources about this that say well you know when it says وَلَمْ تَقْتُلُوهُمْ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ قَتَلَهُمْ وَمَا رَمَيْتَ إِذْ رَمَيْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ رَمَى that is reportedly at the beginning of the battle of Badr the Prophet ﷺ picks a handful of dust or sand and throws it at the Meccan army and then they say, well, you know, what this verse is referring to is that this sand was sort of a miraculous sand. Then Allah caused this handful of sand to fly and enter into the eyes of all the Meccan army. And that's what this verse is talking about. I spent a considerable time investigating this report, more time perhaps than I should have. And as expected, it is entirely apocryphal. It is a classic medieval trope of, and it's actually very much like a, 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 um, a tradition in uh, the Talmud, where David, or um, in one of the battles, also blows uh, a, a puff of, of dust at the at an opponent or at the army and that blinds them. So it, it, it's that same trope. You also find reports that say about the same area that in the battle um, uh, uh, um Um, in the Battle of Khaybar. In the Battle of Khaybar, the, the Prophet ﷺ threw an arrow 
and the arrow flew and then entered the window and then the window of of uh, of uh, uh, um, the fort in Khaybar, which was under siege by Muslims, and then went into the bedroom of a, a leader of Khaybar. Uh, his name was Ibn al-Haqiq, and struck him while he was asleep. And so that the, this ayah was talking about this sort of magical arrow that went and entered the window and killed Ibn al-Haqiq in his bed. Uh, you find reports um, uh, that it refer, refers to the death of um, Ibn, um, uh, Abi ibn Khalaf. That uh, Abi ibn Khalaf was a sworn enemy of Islam, and he was the guy that um, would he he expected that he should be a prophet. He has this whole story. But anyway, Ibn Abi Khalaf you know, thought that he should have been a prophet. And when no one believed that he's a prophet, he was deeply disappointed. And he would travel to Persia and collect Persian mythology and come back and re relate this person Persian mythology as his revelation, what he received from God. And would when he would hear the Quran, he would say, oh, the Quran has the mythology of old, and I bring you the mythology of old, but my mythology is more true than the mythology of the Quran. Anyway, he is, he, he is part of the Meccan army in the Battle of Badr, and he is um, uh, um, captured uh, a prisoner of, as a prisoner of war. And he is ransomed and released, but as soon as he released, he sends a message to the prophet promising him, although, the, uh, although he was released by Muslims, promising that he's going to kill him. And then in the Battle of Uhud, this fellow is killed reportedly by the Prophet. And the, the Prophet throws in a spear and that it hits this fellow and this fellow then dies. And then you find reports in the traditions that, well, no, this ayah is talking about the killing of this man. And, you know, I guess this is what scholars do, is that they, they spend their entire life researching things that take about five minutes uh, to talk. You know, the end result of months and months of research is that all of this is nonsense. Um, this months of research ultimately led that there is no reliable information. There is actually very inconsistent information about uh, Ibn Abi Khalaf that uh, he was that he was killed by the Prophet in the Battle of Uhud, or that he was even killed in the Battle of Uhud. Uh, that Ibn al haqiq was not killed while asleep in the fortress of Khaybar, leave alone by a magical spear. That there is no 
reliable information that the Prophet picked up a handful of dust and threw it at the Meccan army. So months and months of research finally all of that turned out to be uh, just smoke. And it is clear that then when all of these reports don't stand up to scrutiny, then it is clear that we go back to the plain words of the Quran. And the plain words is that when, when I'm, I'm summarizing an entire journey with Surat al-Infan, is that when you spend the entire journey and then you come back and say, wait, this is precisely the point. Is Allah is saying all the jubilation about the incredible feat you've achieved in the Battle of Badr, well, don't let it go to your heads. And again, it's very easy to say, why, why deflate them like this? Why, why, you know, they're, they're just so excited. They're so happy. They want a battle. Let them be happy. Why take it away from them and tell them, I did it. You didn't. Well, because of the notion of entitlement. That's the whole point. You, the, the Allah knows that the tendency of human beings is to say, I've done. I've achieved, I've made. Yes, fine. But if that is your attitude, we will achieve nothing, as you will see. Surat al-Anfal comes out and tells them that. That if that is your attitude, then count on failure. Inflated egos cannot carry God's message. So, and of course, Muslim theologians, as Tafsir al-Amadi, for instance, has a long discussion about this, says that it is with Allah's strength but it is not with Allah's strength that you, because people will shoot a, bat, a bullet, like because I've known this among modern fighters, right? I've seen so many times and when, you know, videos of Hezbollah or videos of Hamas, and they'll, you know, they'll repeat this verse as they're firing. But here's the thing. You are saying I'm shooting this bullet and I am telling myself or I am praying that Allah be the ones who like treat it as if Allah is doing the firing but who made your gun who invented the science because Allah's intervention is not just in pressing the trigger and in, 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 in pulling the trigger Allah's intervention has to be in every stage. So in similarly, it's not you who healed a patient, it's Allah who did. It is not you who litigated this case and won a case for a client, it's Allah who did. If, if of course, it's on the side of justice. 
And similarly, it's not you who made this scientific discovery. It's Allah who did. It's not you who've achieved this, you know, remarkable career results. It's Allah who did. The humility of a Muslim that says, as long as I purify my intention, then Allah acts through me. Okay. And we'll come back to this because this has to be understood in the context of the entire message of Surah Al-Infal. Okay. This is 18, that Allah will weaken, or Allah, you know, 18, just for a second. This was because God's purpose is to, that God renders vain the artful schemes of those who deny the truth, as Muhammad Asad puts it. Okay. Uh, إن تستفتحوا فقد جاءكم الفتح وإن تنتهوا فهو خير لكم وإن تعودوا نعد ولم تغني عنكم فئتكم شيئا ولو كثرت وأن الله مع المؤمنين This is 19 يا أيها الذين آمنوا أطيعوا الله ورسوله ولا تولوا عنه وأنتم تسمعون ولا تكونوا كالذين قالوا سمعنا وهم لا يسمعون This is 21 إن شر الدواب عند الله الصم البكم الذين لا يعقلون This is 22 ولو علم الله فيهم خيرا لأسمعهم ولو أسمعهم لتولوا وهم معرضون This is 23 يا أيها الذين آمنوا استجيبوا لله وللرسول إذا دعاكم لما يحييكم واعلموا أن الله يحول بين المرء وقلبه وأنه إليه تحشرون 24 وَاتَّقُوا فِتْنَةً لَا تُصِيبَنَّ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا مِنْكُمْ خَاصَّةً وَعَلَّمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ 25 So what is then Allah is saying from the point of that Allah is the one that, that's power, the strength behind your actions if they are sincerely dedicated, a very critical message with an important clarification at the beginning. You notice that in 19, Now here there is a... a um, There is a debate in the sources, a grammatical debate, about the grammatical structure of this ayah. According to one grammatical school, when you work through the grammar of this ayah, what it's, it would mean, what it's saying is, is it's addressing itself to the unbelievers. And it's saying to the unbelievers, you Meccans 
at the beginning of the Battle of Badr said, may God make the righteous party victorious. Well, now you've received the answer. The righteous party has been victorious. And if you don't wake up and stop opposing Islam and Muslims, your numbers will avail you nothing. Although this apparent meaning seems to make sense, but it poses very serious grammatical problems. It is actually, although that is the interpretation that all the Mufassirun who segment the Quran ayah by ayah, so they they say this ayah has nothing to do with the ayah before it and, and or nothing to do with the ayah after it. And that's the only way they can accept a grammatical explanation. Grammatically, this is not the interpretation that should be, in my opinion and in the opinion of many. But rather, it's actually not talking to the unbelievers, it's talking to Muslims. And here, then, this verse would connect with the verse before it and would connect with the verse after it and would comfortably sit with the rules of grammar. So, so what does it mean to say, in tastaftihu faqad ja'akum fath? So, here what it would be saying, you sincerely hoped for a victory. Well, Allah gave you a victory. But what have you learned right after this victory? The first thing you argued about is material possessions and wealth, spoils, and fair. That's why it says, So if you desist from that, from this vain argument and vain debate, then that is what is good for you. But if you do not, and you remain deluded in your priorities, then regardless of your number, it will avail you nothing. 
the people who accepted this grammatical interpretation saw in this a foreshadowing of the what would happen in the battle of Uhud. It's like Allah saying, is warning Muslims beforehand. If you don't learn the lesson, well, the lesson could be learned in a much harsher way. If you remain thinking that it was your gallant efforts that won this battle, and, well, I put in most of the efforts, so I should get my real rewards. How much are you paying me? Well, Allah could teach you the lesson in a very different way. And then, remember, regardless of how big your army is, it will not make a difference. And don't become, don't be <clears throat> like those who hear who hear God's words, but they do not comprehend God's words. And that is why it says, because the worse, the worse the web, yeah, creatures, the worse creatures, Are those Asumul Bukm Aladina Layakulun? Are those who Summul Buk Layakulun means those who have no reason. So they they are effectively animals of their passions and desires, not of their commitments and beliefs. And know, you know a lot of people like that. You know the Israelite tribes in Medina who heard the message and turned away. You know the kuffar who heard the message and turned away. You know the hypocrites who heard, turned the mes heard the message and turned away. And this is before the Battle of Uhud. So it is actually even telling them, you know, you even know people who they didn't know at this point, but they will know in the future people who will actually withdraw in the middle of battle. Know those, that those people, yes, they hear God's words. They receive the revelation just like you. But it has no impact upon them. If Allah knew that their hearts were good, that there was good in them, Allah would have helped them to hear. But you know what? Even if Allah would help them, they would still turn away. Meaning they are passion, they are slaves to their passions, their passions and their desires. Look at the way, ultimately, the, the issue of fiat. 
spoils, it's dealt with. It's like saying, starts out saying, it belongs to Allah and the Prophet. And this entire debate, shame on you. And know that there are people, yes, there are people who sit there and look at, talk about their entitlements and, and, and what, how much they're going to make and what they've been paid and how much they, 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 they earned and all of that. But as to those people who persist on this, know that Allah has given up on them. And that is why Allah doesn't help them. And even Allah doesn't help them because Allah knows even if Allah would send them clear signs and messages, they would still turn away. Okay. And understand, understand a very critical message. If only Muslims would understand Surah Al-Fiyah. يَا يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اسْتَجِيبُوا لِلَّهِ وَلِلْرَسُولِ إِذَا دَعَاكُمْ لِمَا يُحْيِيكُمْ Understand that this is a call for what will actually bring you life. مَا يُحْيِيكُمْ The opposite is living death, but you just don't realize it. And understand the understand that and there's a lot written about this 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 just this little phrase, but that and I'm gonna skip the, all the debates because there, there there's no point to and give you the 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 crux of the matter on it. That Allah's, Allah's law, Allah's guidance, Allah's teaching come in and intervene between a human being and a human being's passions. Yahulu bayna al-mar'i wa qalbi. All the other other all the other inter, other interpretations given to this are not correct, but the, the only one that fits with the grammar and the context and everything is that Allah knows that your egos, your heart, your passion, calls upon you to feel otherwise, to desire otherwise, to want otherwise. But understand that the whole point of revelation is to come in and say, your life should be founded on principles, not what your heart desires, not what your ego wants. And then the most remarkable part that is always ignored in Surah Al-Fiyah. 
واتقوا فتنة لا تصيبن الذين ظلموا منكم خاصة واعلموا أن الله شديد العقاب If you don't do that If you remain the type of people that argue about the spoils of war If you, rem if you remain the type of people that live by their passions, not by their principles. If you remain the type of people that don't understand the way that this guidance brings you to life instead of a living death, what will be the result? There will be a fitna, a punishment, a fitna, a trial, a tribulation, that will not befall only those of you who are unjust. In other words, when you are among the people who the way they deal with Allah's guidance is it goes into one ear and out of the other ear, the ultimate result is that when the punishment of Allah comes, it will not torment just the unjust. The Prophet ﷺ commented on this ayah by saying, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُعَذِّبُ الْعَامَّةِ بِعَمَلِ الْخَاصَةِ حَتَّى يَرُوا الْمُنْكَرَ بَيْنَ ظَهْرَانِهِمْ فَلَا يُنْكِرُوهَ that this fitna, however, that Allah talks about, doesn't befall people in this fashion until people get to a point where they see what is wrong being done in their midst and they don't oppose it. And when they don't, when they reach that level, then Allah allows Fitna is everything from war to disease to economic disaster to eternal invasions to everything. But the most important issue in this fitna intended here is to live in a moral decay or ihqaq al-haq to live in a context where morality has decayed, where society is no longer about ihqaq al-haq, establishing what is righteous and what is truth and what is justice, but society aimlessly drift in effectively the survival of the fittest. Everyone is, is basically competing with everyone for number one. Everyone is trying to get ahead. And if you get ahead at the cost of leaving others behind, fine. In my view, that is the worst fitna. Now, what is really interesting is that so many of the Quranic commentators tied, reflected, and some of the, some of the most interesting writings is when they start reflecting upon the 
civil wars after the death of the Prophet in the battle of the camel and in the battle of Talha and Zubair and Aisha and in of course the fitna between Imam Ali and Muawiyah and then between Imam Al-Hussein and Yazid and the, the you know two there are two parties those who say let's not talk about this this issue but you find some very fascinating discussions where say that Allah revealed that when Allah revealed Surah Al-Anfal that Allah, and this is, you know, I wrote an entire book about this issue, so that's why it really fascinates me, that that part of the reason that Allah revealed in the entire Surah Al-Anfal was to warn Muslims that it is when they abandon or when they become preoccupied with material gains and they give up on the principle of that these are the consequences and that and, and some of them even say that the reason for the civil war was to teach generations of Muslims afterwards that, look, even it, this could happen to the best of people, even those who lived at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Um, okay. Then... 26 واذكروا اذ انتم قليلا مستضعفون في الارض تخافون ان يتخطفكم الناس فاواكم وايدكم بنصره ورزقكم من الطيبات لعلكم تشكرون so 26 and remember when you are few and helpless on earth fearful lest people do away with you Whereupon God sheltered you and strengthened you with God's succor and provided for you sustenance out of good things of life so that you might cause to be grateful. You, have, you might have cause to be grateful. What is amazing is Allah is saying this to Muslims right after the battle of Badr. But Muslims, after the Battle of Badr, are so weak. I mean, yes, they won a battle, but they still have a long, you know, they still have Uhud, they still have Ghazwat al-Khandaq, they still have Khaybar, they still have Ghazwat Hunayn, they, they still have a long road ahead of them. And it's sort of that, that part of the power of the Quran is that Allah then tells them Something that sort of, it's a, like a little peek into the future. Into a time where Muslims will actually not be so small, so weak, that they are at risk. And literally, 
that they are going to be extinguished from the face of the earth. The reason I, I say this is that among the um, um, a lot of commentators, a lot of Muslim authorities understood that what Allah is actually saying them, telling them, be, reading, of course, the Quran, many of them, them reading the Quran, you know, uh, decades after the Prophet had died, it's to reflect back on a reality. There is an authority, an early authority called Qutada, who was among the very early commentators on the Quran. Um, earliest comment among the earliest commentators of the Quran. And he has a statement that I, I really like. Um, so he, he says, so what he's saying is, it is undeniable that Arabs were, as a people, the most degraded people and the people living in the most hardship of all. It is undeniable, collectively, Arabs as a people were the most hungry, destitute. The Arahu Julud, I mean, they often wore clothes that didn't cover their bodies. Partial or, or, or you know, substantial nakedness and nudity because of lack of means to cover your body was very common. Their state of affairs is that they were all dominated and they dominated no one. The Arabs were at the bottom of the totem pole. That we don't know any people who were lower than Arabs in these days, in terms of power and status, until the message, until Islam took them from a people not on the map, the desert dwellers, into civilization builders. So, this ayah is as pertinent when it was revealed in the aftermath of Badr as it is today. Remember when you were nobody. And if it hasn't been for this message, you would have remained nobody. Nobody. 
But in it is also the reminder that in the same way you could return to being nobody if you forget the lessons imparted to you by this revelation. So then, now, observe this. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَخُونُوا اللَّهَ وَالرَّسُولُ وَتَخُونُوا أَمَانَاتِكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ فِتْنَةٌ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ عِنْدَهُ أَجْرٌ عَظِيمٌ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنْ تَتَّقُوا اللَّهَ يَجْعَلْ لَكُمْ فُرْقَانًا وَيُكَفِّرْ عَنْكُمْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ ذُو الْفَضْلِ الْعَظِيمِ So this is now from 27 to 29. So then Allah comes affirming this message by saying, so directing the discourse to believers, Muslims, don't betray your amana, your trust your covenant, your promise. So, betraying the revelation is betraying your amana. Is betraying Allah and the Prophet and your amana. Making your life about material possessions instead of principles and a moral journey is a betrayal of your amana. Indeed, being arguing about the spoils of war is betraying your amana. And if you don't clearly understand what betrayal your, of your amana is, understand that your money and your children, money and children is often just a, a, as, as, a, as a phrase, a construct for prestige and power and place in society, is a test. It's a fitna. And understand that if you persevere in holding on to this message, يَجْعَلَ لَكُمْ فُرْقَانًا This again often gets just completely overlooked. يَجْعَلَ لَكُمْ فُرْقَانًا that the blessing that Allah will bestow upon you is that as a society, you will be able to discern right from wrong. You will not be confused as to your value system. So we go back again. If in the aftermath of this victory, 
You think your life is about entitlements and prestige and material possessions and power. Then what you will gain is the fitna that will not just make only the unjust suffer, but but you will be confused. You, the, what Allah will take away from you is the furqan. Furqan is the ability to tell right from wrong. Is you will become a confused, morally confused people. So many commentators posited this and couldn't understand it and said, okay, well, Allah will, Furqan is Quran? No. Adam al-iltibas fil ashya' is the Furqan. Adam al-iltibas fil ashya' that your ability to discern what is morally right and morally wrong, you will not be a people where a president of a country can fill, kill 40,000 Muslims at the border with the help of the French and you still think he's a good ruler. Can you imagine more iltibas than that? I mean, is it possible? You, 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 you won't be a people where it, 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 you have a ruler that commits the largest urban massacre in modern history, in Rabah, and you still have many people that pray and fast and so on and say, oh, we like him. You won't have a ruler that spends the country's wealth on Hollywood performers, singers and dancers paying them millions of dollars to come make you rock and create halal bars and you say, oh, may Allah preserve Tala Umro, may Allah preserve his health and, 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 and you know, he's great, he's wonderful. Can you imagine greater confusion that you become morally confused people. Because, and note again the construction here, that first Allah reminds you that you are nothing. You are mustadafuna fil ard. You are oppressed. You are nobodies. You were dominated by empires that were not Muslim. Allah not just defeated these empires, Allah made these empires become Muslim. And for the first time, you had a civilization that actually upheld your dignity in the world, made you have some value. But, if you betray Allah and betray the Prophet and betray the trust and you forget that your money and your children, meaning your prestige, your social prestige, is a fitna, 
you forget what this message is about. Then, what will follow from that? What will follow is that you will lose the Furqan. And you will lose Allah's blessing. Subhanallah that, you know, I, I've found reports many where, 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 you know, it was clear that early Muslims understood the, the gravity, or I mean, the, the critical, the group that made a difference in the birth of the Islamic message. You know, the, 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 the people who actually mattered because of their dedication and their commitment, but it was a critical mass to actually make a difference. But they understood the significance of the historical moment in which they were living and understood that precisely as Surah Al-Baqarah came and said, there are no entitlements. It's a covenant. It's a trust. If you don't uphold your end of the bargain, and it is remarkable that after the victory in Badr, Allah comes and says, good job, but remember. No entitlements. And remember that even in the victory of Badr, you can see the the warning signs, the signs of danger. We're getting close to. So now from وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيَثَبِّتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ وَإِذَا تُتْلَى عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُنَا قَالُوا سَمِعْنَا لَوْ نَشَاءُ لَقُلْنَا مِثْلَ هَذَا إِنَّ هَذَا إِلَّا أَسَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ وَإِذْ قَالُوا اللَّهُمَّ إِنْ كَانَ هَذَا هُوَ الْحَقُّ مِنْ عِنْدِكَ فَامْطِرْ عَلَيْنَا حِجَارَةً مِنَ السَّمَاءِ أَوْ أَتِنَا بِعَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ So now from 30 to 32 that um, actually I, I um, Was it? Uh, uh, my my memory betrayed me. It's not Ibn Abi Khalaf who used to go get the um, the mythology of the Persians and come back. It's uh, Al Nudar Ibn Al Harth who used to do that. It's not Ibn Abi Khalaf. Ibn Abi Khalaf had another story. I, my my memory confused the two for a second. But anyway, just as a correction for something I said earlier. 
Um, but anyway, so notice now this from this 30 to 32, Allah goes back and addresses briefly um, a number of, or the responding to things that the Prophet and Muslims encountered in the polemics between them and those who rejected the message. And that they, like Nudar ibn al-Harith, would say that, you know, oh, we can, we can compose something like the Quran. And they, they tried. Um, the Quran doesn't say anything new or original. To, to dismiss that those who challenge part of what creates confusion when a Furqan lacks in society. The Furqan is the ability to discern truth from falsehood, right from wrong, al-husn, beauty from qubh, ugliness, morality from immorality, ethics from the lack of ethics, is often the obfuscations of the type of those like Nudar ibn al-Harth who would listen to the Quran and say, oh, I, I can say better than that if I wanted to. Or we don't hear anything specifically ingenious or brilliant or gifted in the Quran. Oh, what is this? This is just stories of old that this type of dismissive propaganda and polemics can easily confuse a people who have lost their value system. If you're not anchored in a real value system, these types of polemics can get to you. If your life is about al-fiyah, not necessarily spoils of war, but about whatever you think you're entitled to. Remember, whatever you think you're entitled to. Then, rest assured, you will be confused when the time comes for a moral challenge. Or when the very obvious other moral challenge, well, if this is the truth, why doesn't God just send, like Allah did with, your, your Quran says, Allah sent rocks from the heavens to kill the invaders in, in Surah Al-Fil, the invaders who came to destroy the Kaaba. Why doesn't Allah send rocks upon us now and just destroy us? Another very logical point. If you're not anchored, it becomes confusing, as it did confuse, and you'll see that it's leading up to a very fascinating point. Those who converted to Islam but didn't migrate, 
confusion. Things were confused in their mind. So it's leading up to that. But the, the brilliance of, of just the, the, the way that the surah develops. Okay. And then Allah responds to this in something that gave Muslim commentators such a pause that they wrote so much on it. Then Allah responds to this and says, something that is expected and something that is completely unexpected. The expected part is that, well, Allah wouldn't punish them or wouldn't destroy them him. Okay, and you are with them. But that begs the question then, okay, well, if that's the case, Allah, the Prophet has left them. فيهم, you are with them. You are in their midst. So if you're talking about the Meccans, well, that would make sense when the Prophet was in Mecca. But now the Prophet is not in Mecca. Why don't you destroy them? You are not him anymore. Right? So, if things are not clear in your head, you'd say, well, okay, the Prophet is not with them. So, then Allah tells you the second part, which is what gave, وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ That Allah would not destroy them either when you are in their midst or وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ هُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ as it reads, the literal meaning is Allah would not destroy them as long as they are asking Allah for forgiveness. So, and this is the response to, well, why doesn't Allah just destroy us like Allah has destroyed? So who is it that is asking Allah for forgiveness. See, there are several possibilities, right? It's possible that the Meccans themselves, although they worshipped idols, but there were some of them that still held on to the idea of a deity. They didn't believe in a hereafter, but they I believed in the idea of a deity represented by these symbolic idols and that they would ask that deity for forgiveness. That's a possibility. Another possibility is, as some commentators claimed, that the Meccans still had a considerable number of people who had converted to Islam 
but had not migrated. And that Wahum Yastaghfirun refers to the presence of these Muslims and as support to this idea is that the surah goes on after this to talk about those who converted but didn't migrate. And they said, well, it must be that Wahum Yastaghfirun refers to those who converted but didn't migrate. A third group, a minority view, said that وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبُهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ مُعَذِّبُهُمْ وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ is that notice they argued if you go back to let's say 25, onwards from 25 to 32, you said that the context is not talking about the kuffar of Mecca. It is talking about society in Medina. And they said that they were in Medina. Another ibn Harth was in, in Mecca, but in Medina, among the critics to the Prophet ﷺ, including but not exclusively Jewish tribes, who said, well, we th this Quran is not special. We could write something like this. We have a number of reports of the, the hypocrites of Medina and Jewish tribes saying precisely that. And we have several attempts of surviving attempts of either hypocrites in Medina or Jewish tribes actually composing things that mimic the Quran or try to sound like the Quran. And we have in the polemics challenges to the Prophet ﷺ by especially by in, in the Jewish tribes in Medina who would tell the hypocrites if this was a real prophet if the real prophets of the Bible vanquished those who didn't believe them destroyed those who didn't believe them if this was a real prophet, he would have the power to destroy us by calling in a calamity the way the biblical prophets did, the Talmudic prophets did, or the Torah prophets did, who are often bringing in God's wrath upon their opponents. And that then the, the response, this would not happen refers to the Prophet not being in Mecca, but being in Medina. وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ referring to what Al-Umran makes explicit, that even among those people who are defiled, 
are people who spend their nights worshiping God and supplicating God for forgiveness. These are the three main, the, 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 the first is the majority, the two others are minorities. I think the third or the last one is the correct one. Actually, uh, uh, hold on. Um, no, I take that back. I take that back. I don't think the last one is the correct one because uh, I, I think the point, what I think will become clear as when we come and, and wrap the entire surah. Um, what time is it now? Okay, it's uh, 10 to 10, so... Let's stop here. It's obvious I'm not going to finish Surah Al-Anfal today. Um, it's 75 Surah. It's not a Surah that I can just skip around. Uh, a, a lot of the Surah in Medina, it's really important to go ayah by ayah. Not an ayah and ayah by ayah tafsir, but to show you how the entire texture and fabric and construct of the surah itself, the integrity of the surah itself, um, um, delivers a, a unified message. Um, so we then have stopped at verse 34. So inshallah, next halqa will start with 34. Okay. Okay, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. That was incredible. I, I oftentimes start, I feel like I'm cramming for a test at the end because I'm like trying to prepare these like notes that have highlights from today's session and it was truly amazing. And of course at the very end, when I think when we reached like verse, I don't know, 30, 32, um, the last part, um, I just was like, got that same overcome that feeling that overcomes me where it's like oh my god this is just like it's it, you, you're left completely speechless um thank you this was such an incredible um incredible start of the journey so um just some highlights um to note for today um i thought that um the historical context that you provided to us about what was happening at the time of um, the Battle of Badar, what led up to it, what, you know, how people were feeling, again, um, was uh, underscored the power of, of stories. And like when you understand the context in which these things are happening and the different people and their motivations and their emotions, um, you know, you just, you connect at a very different level because, you know, as a human being, you can understand exactly how people were feeling whether it was because of the victory or because of their feeling about their entitlements um, regarding their sacrifices and what they should get and all of that it was just it made everything much more real and relatable um you focused on the in the aftermath of a victory how is it that allah was speaking to the early muslims and pointed out that this was an, uh, a warning before uhud um which was fascinating um 
and that this was ultimately the, the cause of the defeat at Uhud and what happens when you know what Allah is cautioning but you, you ignore it and you give in to your ego and your desire. Um, and the message that Allah is telling the early Muslims, it's not about what you gain in your victory but what you give and to focus on the relationship between, um, you know, brothers, brother to brother, brother to sister, sister, uh, and, um, you know, the, the relationship among you. Um, then covering the definition of a mu'min or a true believer and going through um, the emotive response and the internal measure that, as you pointed out, is not something that you can really highlight in law, but it's like, do you get goosebumps when you think of Allah? And does your faith increase when you hear Allah's words? Um, these are the measures of the, the true nature of your iman. And um, God is, is calling us to an introspective or giving us an introspective message. You know, are you among the true believers? Um, and it's about your trust in Allah in tawakkul and your faith, iman, um, about your, your relationship and your certainty about Allah. And that um, Allah's goal is to uphold truth um, and defeat what is false. So al-haq and, uh, and defeat what is false and evil. Um, and you know, asks, are you a Rabbani? Do you share the same goals as Allah? And um, is this victory about truth and justice or is it about your ego? So pointing out that this is not a human message because it's not what you would typically expect as a human, like you're great, you're amazing, you're wonderful, look what you did but more don't let it go to your head, that's very nice, um, but there are no entitlements. Um, and also understand the role of Allah's will in people's achievements, um, that if you prepare and you work hard, um, you do your part, then Allah can give you the courage and the inspiration that you need, um, and also um, fill you know, the, your enemies' hearts with um, fear and, and discouragement. Um, so, again, to underscore that Allah can um, inspire all kinds of discoveries and great things. Um, and the power of the ethical norms that um, you reminded us of um, that arose from the surah, like a mu'min doesn't fear death, never give up, um, inspiring that daring explorer ethic um, for discovery. And these are things that we've sort of lost in our modern times. Um, the reminder that Allah acts through you um, and that uh, we have to be humble and understanding that there are no entitlements, that Allah's intervention takes place in every state, every stage of accomplishment, and that Allah's power is behind you, um, it, behind your actions, if you are sincerely dedicated. And again, this is a message foreshadowing what could potentially, what happened at Uhud. Um, and that the worst of those are those who hear the message and turn away and who don't recognize that this is a message of actual life, even though they think that it's, you know, people criticize that this was walking into a suicide mission or death, that in fact, this is the message of life, that it is choosing principle over what your heart desires. Um, and when your heart is occupied with material gains, you give up on principle and there are consequences for that. Um, and to, I thought verse 26 was mind-blowing, remember when you were nobody um, until the message of Islam came, like you were the bottom of the barrel. And don't forget that if you let go of this message that you could return to being nobody. Um, so believers do not betray your trust. And if you choose a material life and what your heart desires, that that is a betrayal of your trust. And if you do so, part of that is that you will lose 
the forcon, the criterion, the ability to discern what's right and wrong, and ultimately lose Allah's blessings, and you will be confused when you are morally challenged. So those were incredible. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so, so much. This was an, uh, an amazing way to start the beginning of the year, the next surah, and I'm so excited um, for the next session, inshallah, this coming Tuesday. So um, you guys have a happy rest of the weekend, and inshallah, we will see you on Tuesday. So thank you so much for being with us. Assalamu alaikum. Everybody stay safe, stay, stay healthy, be well. Assalamu alaikum.